This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Connecticut State Representative-elect Matt Blumenthal. Thanks for coming on and congrats on winning your election. Thanks for having me, Jordan. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, of course. So what inspired you to run for this office in the first place? So I'm somebody who has always been involved in public service in one way or another. Never before through political office myself, but I worked on the Obama campaign doing field in 2008. Um, you know, growing up, I volunteered in a variety of activities. And uh, later, I joined the Marine Corps, became an infantry officer, and ended up deploying to Afghanistan, commanding a rifle platoon there. And during law school, I also did service work. And ultimately, um, I got involved in local politics after the uh, 2016 election because I felt like people of my generation, our generation, uh, needed to get into the fight for our values and our future. And Ultimately, the, present, the uh, opportunity to run for office presented itself, and I seized it. And uh, the campaign was tremendously fulfilling experience. And now I'm looking forward to actually doing the work of governing as well. And what does that work look like for this legislative session? Um, we've got a lot of really important issues on, on the docket this session. Uh, this is the long session for us, so the budget, of course, is going to be a big one. Um, we're also looking to get some... Uh, progressive uh, advances done, including increasing the minimum wage, uh, getting past paid family and medical leave. Um, we need to invest in transportation because that's the key to Connecticut's future. And we've got some gun safety related issues we have to get done. And then uh, we are looking to pass uh, legislation uh, legalizing and regulating and taxing uh, the sale of recreational marijuana. So uh, big session, and those are some of uh, the issues and just a few of them. And what were the results of the 2018 midterms in Connecticut, and what do they mean for these progressive priorities? So the Democrats returned huge victories across the state in places where we're not used to winning. And I think the biggest reason for that is because the current state of our politics has engaged so many new people. Uh, we just saw volunteers coming out of the woodwork, people who hadn't voted in a long time coming forward to cast their ballot. And that volunteer engagement and energy really just helped us tremendously to run a campaign that was based on a really vigorous field uh, program. My campaign knocked over 10,000 doors, uh, made over 14,000 calls, and those voter contacts made a difference in our election and also in uh, elections across the state. So I think we have a really good chance of getting some good legislation passed this session, and we hope to engage Republicans in doing that as well. What has been kind of Connecticut's history on these issues in the past? What progress has been made in the past, if any? Well, we've, we've generally been a leader on a lot of these progressive issues, um, on gun safety in particular because of the terrible tragedy that happened at Sandy Hook in 2012. This has been a really just 
uh, an issue that's very close to our hearts here. And we passed some very serious and effective gun safety reforms in the wake of that tragedy. I think it's time that we updated some of them to include things like 3D printed guns, banning ghost guns, ensuring safe storage, and some other issues as well. We've also been a leader in criminal justice reform, where Governor Malloy's Second Chance Society has uh, applied really the lessons learned uh, from the past generation of criminal justice in a way to reduce the prison population and make our focus uh, and our approach to crime and law enforcement much smarter. And going back to marijuana legalization, does expunging the records of individuals convicted on nonviolent possession offenses, is that a big part of this? I think it's a significant uh, part of it. We need to look carefully at the expungement of nonviolent marijuana-related offenses that have to do with possession of a, of a small amount of marijuana because it's had huge uh, criminal justice con- uh, consequences in a way that has been very unfair and has been influenced by matters of uh, race and poverty and things like that. We need to ensure that our criminal justice system is as fair as it possibly can be and that we can also uh, promote the employment of all sorts of people uh, who are not going to be held back by uh, policies that we know better than to have promoted today. And what exactly are incarceration rates like in Connecticut? So the incarceration rates in Connecticut have gone down very significantly, uh, importantly, alongside the crime rates in Connecticut since 2010. And I think that just shows that the reforms that we've been pursuing here, uh, they're uh, both uh, humane and also smart on crime. And I think we're going to continue to be making adjustments, and I hope that we'll be able to uh, utilize the newest approaches and data-oriented policies coming out of uh, our law enforcement and criminology experts uh, to promote smart on crime policies that prevent crime uh, and promote good criminal justice, but also ensure that the consequences of being uh, in, engaged or involved with the criminal justice system are not compromising the futures forever of people uh, across the board. And one thing that progressive criminal justice experts have increasingly been talking about is restorative justice and moving away from the punitive method of throwing everyone in prison. What exactly is your perspective on how to make the criminal justice system truly effective? So I think we have to use the latest and the best data uh, available and the best approaches available. Uh, in my home city of Stanford, for instance, we have had a com- community policing initiative. It has been very successful. We're one of the safest cities in New England. In fact, I think last year we were the safest city in New England uh, by criminal uh, stats, and we want to keep that going forward. So I think it means, in terms of prevention, a collaborative approach. I think we do need to uh, take the insights of restorative justice and apply them uh, in Connecticut, and I think that some of those have been used in the Second Chance Society program. Uh, but we need to take the best approaches uh, off the shelf from wherever we can find them. And it's certainly true that uh, some people for some crimes should be in prison, but that's not the right approach for all crimes and all offenders. So we need to be applying the best approaches, the best data to get the best result for our state. And how do you think we should approach this when it comes to drug addiction? 
Well, I think the punitive approach we've seen, especially uh, given the opioid crisis that we're seeing, is uh, not been effective. We need to have an approach that focuses on treating drug addiction like what it is, a disease. Um, and so while some pieces of uh, the opioid crisis and uh, the and drug issues involve the criminal justice system, drug addiction, uh, like many other issues, is also a public health issue. And I think we need to be applying the lessons of public health professionals uh, this problem and then applying a treatment-based approach as well. How is the legislature going to approach that in this legislative session? I think it's hard to predict exactly what will happen, but I think we're focused on the right issues. Um, I think people recognize, um, in terms of addiction, especially in relation to the opioid crisis, that it, it's something that really needs uh, a serious approach. It needs resources. Um, it needs the best available practices. And I think uh, hopefully we'll be able to uh, craft legislation to address that problem in a way that's humane and well thought out. And I'm optimistic about that at this point. And obviously, in regards to the war on drugs, that's a big racial justice issue. What exactly is your racial justice perspective and what policies do you support? Well, I think um, on criminal justice, ensuring that we have uh, smart policies that don't unfairly burden communities of color or communities that live in poverty is, is just really important. And I don't claim to be an expert on these issues necessarily. But what I can say is that I'm somebody who wants to listen and um, absorb those lessons uh, from the people who are experts on them. So I look forward to uh, applying an approach uh, based on those issues uh, that's well-informed and um, that gets the communities affected to the table. And what other social justice issues are you focused on? Well, uh, I think that uh, we have to protect uh, a woman's right to choose and to decide what she wants to do with her own body and her own reproductive health choices. We've been a leader on that in Connecticut, but there's significantly more things we can do, it, especially in relation to private health care plans or banning discrimination based on reproductive health choices. I think we need to look at how to make health care more available. You know, our health care system uh, as a country is in crisis and we need a national solution, but there are also, also things we can do at the state level. So I think we need to look into things like perhaps creating a public option, if that ends up being feasible here in Connecticut, uh, to ensure that all people can have access to affordable health care. And I also think, so think we need to make sure that cities like my city of Stanford are getting their fair share of education cost-sharing dollars from the state um, because uh, we have, all our children deserve to have a world-class education, and all the opportunities that it provides. Hey everyone, I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates 
causes and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government. And you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day. I pretty much live there. So if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. And obviously for our audience, higher education is a really big concern. What are your, what are your priorities there? Well, I think we need to make uh, higher education more affordable. It's just completely unsustainable uh, to have students coming out of college and other high, higher education with, uh, you know, absolutely bone-crushing, life-crushing debt. Um, and so that means that we need to increase access to education. Uh, with less cost. I think we also need to look into making sure that people who don't necessarily uh, want or need to go to college can have opportunities that are going to get them trained up and educated for the jobs of the future. And so I think investing in vocational education in our community colleges is hugely important, uh, not only for individual people who are going to be looking for jobs in the future, but also for our state, because we actually have a, a deficit of, uh, of people ready to perform the uh, high-tech manufacturing jobs here in Connecticut that we need. We actually have about 13,000 jobs currently open in Connecticut in manufacturing uh, and similar trade-based areas that are unfilled and businesses can't find people to fill because we haven't sufficiently been preparing people to take those jobs. Connecticut school segregation rates are some of the highest in the country. How are you going to deal with that? You know, it's a problem that has uh, been endemic for a very long time. And the uh, Chef versus O'Neill uh, settlement attempted to deal with it. I think we're still looking at how successful it's been. I think we're going to need to see more cooperation among different communities to make sure that all children and young people in Connecticut can get the education that they deserve. I think um, Stanford has actually... Uh, in one of the communities where uh, an affirmative desegregation policy and community schools have been successful. Um, and so I'm not going to claim to have all the answers, but it's something we really need to be serious about pursuing and improving. And obviously, all of this comes under the shadow of a Republican president and Senate and Supreme Court and all of the concerns about what that's going to do to all these, this massive range of policies from healthcare to education to civil rights. What exactly can state governments do in response to what's going on in Washington? The answer is a lot. And in fact, state governments, I think, are, are kind of our first and last line of defense against uh, some of the bad policies we're seeing coming out of Washington. We can do things like improve our Trust Act in Connecticut, which prevents our law enforcement from being commandeered to execute the current administration's immigration policies. Um, you know, we can do good things on gun safety to lower crime and make sure that uh, nobody, whether they live in Newtown or Bridgeport, has to fear 
death or maiming by gun violence. We can promote good policies on marijuana. We can promote good policies to protect the civil rights of women and uh, racial minorities and LBGTQ Americans. Uh, we can improve the healthcare system and bring more people into it. I think there are a lot of things we can do and a lot of things we must do to move the ball forward on these issues, regardless of who's in power in Washington. And one of the biggest concerns is dealing with a conservative Supreme Court that could reverse such major decisions like Roe v. Wade. Can state governments do anything in response to that? Yes, and Connecticut has already taken some measures to do that. I think we can strengthen those measures. So um, in Connecticut, uh, Roe v. Wade is currently enshrined into law. I think we could uh, make that even stronger by enshrining it uh, via statute and in the Connecticut Constitution um, so that it is explicit that that right is protected regardless of what happens in Washington. Um, and, and that's kind of representative of a lot of issues. You know, we've seen uh, some of the challenges of federalism when during the Obama administration, a lot of more conservative-leaning states were pushing back on some of his policies. But, you know, the, the other side of federalism is that states like Connecticut can uh, work to promote good policies within their borders um, in ways that don't conflict with the Constitution or federal law in any way. And uh, in, so, in some ways, states are kind of uh, mini laboratories for democracy and, and often have the opportunity to try new and innovative policies that are later adopted on the uh, federal level. Ironically, uh, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, uh, was tried out in Massachusetts first. And I think there's good policies like criminal justice reform that can be tried in states first and then executed on the national stage. How can our listeners in Connecticut stay engaged with local politics in the upcoming legislative session? Well, I think that they need to stay engaged. I think people across the country need to stay engaged uh, to protect our democracy and to make sure that we're going to have uh, good leadership going forward. And in Connecticut, that means that you should um, stay engaged with your local and national elected officials. Um, you know, we represent you. We serve you. You should reach out to us if you have concerns, if you would like to testify uh, on a bill or an issue before the legislature. Um, if you have questions, um, we represent you and we need to have answers for you. We need to respond to your concerns. And I, I think uh, that's why I'm planning to have a number of community conversations going forward where we can talk about what we're doing in the legislature and people uh, can stay engaged because I think it's vitally important uh, that they do so not only for the 2020 elections, but just going forward. We've seen the what can happen when people are, do not feel engaged by their government, and we don't want that happening again. And how can folks get in touch and stay engaged with you? So uh, you can go to my website or my Facebook page or my Instagram or my Twitter, and you can uh, message me. Um, you should really just feel uh, free to reach out to me whenever you have a question or a concern, because I want to be somebody who is responsive, and, and I may not always have the answers, but I, I can promise that I will look for them. So um, I encourage people to, um, to contact me in whatever way they feel most comfortable. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for taking some time to speak with us on the podcast today. And we hope to catch up with you 
later in the year to hear about all the progress you've made. Thanks so much, Jordan. I hope we'll have some good news for you by then. Awesome. And lastly, to our listeners, make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and tune in to the Progressive Radio Network every week at 8 p.m. Eastern to hear our newest episodes. Thanks for listening.